The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by returning guest, scientist, social theorist, and researcher at the Ontario Civil Liberties Association, the controversial, dare we say, Dr. Denis Rancourt. Denis, how are things in the Canadian Fourth Reich? <laughs> I didn't know I was controversial. I guess it depends who you talk to, right? Uh, who I'm controversial with. But anyway, it's a pleasure to be here again for the second time, I think, on the, on your show. Um, and I'm ready to go at it. Uh, everything about what's happening in Canada all the way into geopolitics, for sure. All right. Uh, yeah, we first uh, spoke almost a year ago, I think, in February of 2021. We discussed uh, what I'll call the crown uh, ailment and the bigger context and picture of what's really going on. Uh, And we based that discussion on your excellent 2019 report on geoeconomics, geopolitics, and predatory okay. globalization, which amazingly was prescient and foresaw uh, in, back in 2019 many of the political and economic aspects of what began to occur in 2020 after a pandemic uh, was declared. Uh, you've got a new report or study published a few months ago on what you determine is the true nature of the public health disaster, at least in the U.S., and your conclusions further confirm what we were discussing uh, last time, that there is no pandemic. And it's, you know, it's a hard pill to swallow, but I think that's uh, where we're at. And, you know, the more I think about it, the more this seems to me to be the case. I'm just not seeing it Uh, anywhere. It's as if, you know, one day out of the blue, all of a sudden, governments arbitrarily have declared, we must all wear masks, bathe in poisonous gel, take our temperature and use a digital yellow star passport uh, for no reason. And, you know, by all measures, it just doesn't seem to qualify as a pandemic. Uh, and as you detail in your report, the mortality numbers are not there. We have misdiagnosis, widely used government protocols that are probably the true culprits uh, killing people. And I'm he seeing more and more doctors say this and you know the, the government imposed psychological stress you talk about the mass injection into people of these questionable uh, fluids and and so forth and so we're kind of continuing the conversation to get uh, an up-to-date uh perspective from you of where where your mind's at and uh we can start i guess to touch on the health aspect and then we can get into the geopolitical so uh it's 2022 what is your what is the true nature of this fake uh, pandemic dr <laughs> rancor okay well the national jurisdiction where it is easiest to study the covid crisis is the united states and that's for a couple of reasons uh one is they have very good data you can get all cause mortality data in detail as a function of time by state, by jurisdiction, by age group, etc. Uh, you know, when people died, uh, uh, how old they were, and so on, when and where. Um, so they have very good data, and they put it out fairly quickly. And it's a big place. You've got 50 states that you can study individually. So you can co compare 50 different jurisdictions that are almost like countries in their own, in their own right. So you can look, when you're looking for correlations, you can You've got 50 points on the graph of the differences from state to state. Uh, you know, when you're comparing, you're, you're looking for uh, correlations between mortality, excess mortalities, for example, and some characteristic of the state, whether it's poverty or something else, and so on. So um, the United States is an excellent place. The other reason it's, it's a good place to do this kind of study is because there are an enormous amount of excess deaths in the U.S., unlike any other Western country, really. So uh, our, when we quantify it, we find that there were 
over a million extra deaths in the United States compared to the historic trend of before the pandemic was announced, okay? So there's over a million deaths that you're working with that are clearly above the historic trend. That's a massive amount. And um, for example, in Canada, the number of excess deaths above the, the historic trend is zero, statistically zero. There is no difference in all-cause mortality integrated uh, by year, by calendar year, by cycle year, however way you want to measure it, there's no difference compared to the historic trend, nothing statistically significant whatsoever. So if a virulent pathogen occurred in the US and killed a million people, how did it not cross the border into Canada? What the heck is going on? And the answer is, when we look at in detail, is there was no special virulent pathogen that we can see the effect of that spreads like a viral respiratory disease, okay? There was no such thing. What we see instead is we see um, jurisdictions very localized that had a large number of extra deaths, and everywhere where we see it, at the time where we see it, it's in direct response to something really stupid and criminal that the government did or the way that the medical establishment responded to something, okay? So all the deaths, in my view, when I look at all-cause mortality in detail of all the Western countries, every province in Canada, every state in the United States, I can say that I cannot understand the excess mortality except to say that they were due to the way that the medical establishment responded. And that includes refusing treatment, uh, and the way that the government locked down and destroyed the economy and people's lives and isolated people and caused enormous individual stress and social isolation. Those were the factors that killed people and a large number in the United States. Okay. And I, I, what about the rest of the world? I'm, I'm assuming that we can just take that and just apply it to pretty much uh, every country where we have maybe other countries, you know, apart from like Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, Canada is an example where there's absolutely no statistical increase, even though there was all the same crazy, nonsensical government response and, and media talk and everything. And if you look at Europe, uh, most Western European countries are the same. You, there's statistically no increase in mortality. The places that have significant increase in mortality compared to the historic trend are Eastern, former Eastern uh, block European countries. So, for example, Ukraine has a big excess and so on and so on. Now, if you if you look at, at it in more detail and really finely, you can find, of course, there are anomalies, like a lot of Western countries had a very sharp peak of excess of, of um, all-cause mortality right after the pandemic was announced. But we know that that was from uh, the horrid measures that they imposed immediately, where they took the sickest people from ICU units and hospitals and everything to free up the beds and sent them into care homes, elderly people, and locked them into those care homes. So this was a murderous practice. And every jurisdiction that did that aggressively had a large immediate response peak in, in, the, in the mortality. So they accelerated the death of elderly people. And we know that they accelerated those deaths because we can see that for that age group, after that couple of months, the deaths come back down to normal and go sub-historic trend for that age group. So we know that, that that's called the, the, 
the, the dry tinder effect. So we know that they accelerated the mortality for a couple of months right after the pandemic. And then once they had killed off the most fragile and everything, there were less deaths in that age group than there would have been otherwise uh, from the historic trend. So there's all kinds of features like that that you can see in the excess mortality. Uh, France had a peak like that. The UK, Canada had its own peak, especially in Quebec, of that nature, even though integrated over a year, there's not statistically more deaths. Uh, but they still killed elderly people, accelerated their deaths uh, by those measures. So there's all kinds of details like that in the all-cause mortality. So if basically, if you want to know if something has happened that has caused uh, enormous amount of deaths suddenly because in, in a causal fashion, the most reliable data is all-cause mortality because you have it on a fine time scale. You can do it by day if you want. And you've got enough resolution there that you can start to figure out what happened, okay? And so when we use that data to the best of our ability, I do not see any evidence that there was a virulent a viral respiratory disease on the planet that came on and, 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 and did things. Yeah, and, you know, I, I, I was the first to interview the Bioweapons um, Act uh, author, Dr. Francis Boyle, in 20, 2020, January, and... Um, I've kind of moved away from the bioweapons uh, angle, even though they do the gain of function and, and, and all of that stuff. Um, I'm just thinking this, that this was just a giant uh, false flag uh, and it was for economic and political purposes. I, that, you know, that, I, I don't, why, what, but why would you call it a false flag? I mean, it, it was a campaign that was orchestrated and planned massively coordinated across the world, especially the Western world. And uh, it was done for reasons, but uh, a false flag is when you want uh, someone to be blamed for something they didn't do, Right. And so I don't, I don't see it as a false flag. I wouldn't use that term, but it's definitely a campaign. Um, so, um, yeah, that's on the false. Sorry, that triggered me, the false flag thing. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, I, uh, mean, uh, I, I mean, my, my definition is more, it's like they tell us it's for this reason, but in reality, it's, it's, it's about, really about oh, something oh, else. Just, and and uh, in that sense, and just kind of like for, for you to sum up, because I, I want to get into the geopolitical and, I don't want to dwell too much on the health stuff because people can read your report and, you know, there's, there's, um, I mean, what, what, can you just conclude that it's, it's really not about health? Well, what has gone, gone oh, on? With there the is pandemic? Abs- well, it's about health in that many people are right. dying. It's but, about health in the sense that they definitely killed people and are killing people. Right. And there's no doubt about that. Um, um, I, for just recently, I was looking at, this is not published yet, but I was looking at the detailed all-cause mortality for Ontario, the province where I live in Canada. And what we see is that in, in the second half of May, they stopped the lockdown and they freed up society, restaurants and bars opened up and we were going back to normal and, and so on. And there's a drop in all-cause mortality coincident with exactly that uh, definitive change in government measures. Uh, first time I've ever seen that, a very clear uh, drop in all-cause mortality in the province of Ontario, where they did that. So there is no doubt that there's hard evidence uh, that the measures were killing people. Uh, but um, now in the United States, um, the big paper you're referring to, which is on my website, um, the people who died in this way were, it's, it's strongly correlated with poverty of the state and obesity 
the average obesity rate in the state, and therefore it's related to diabetes and so on. And the big killer uh, is certainly uh, bacterial pneumonia. And the CDC admits that bacterial pneumonia is omnipresent almost whenever they have a death associated with COVID-19. So there was a very real epidemic of bacterial pneumonia in the United States, 10 times more than you normally would have at the same time where the medical establishment was recommending to MDs not to prescribe antibiotics. And most MDs were refusing in telemedicine by uh, to, to prescribe antibiotics. So um, it's, the, it's the poor, elderly, obese, in the states that have low life expectancy, those were the people that died uh, clearly. And the mechanism was bacterial pneumonia to a large extent. And that mechanism is known to be very sensitive to stress and to social isolation because uh, your immune system gets uh, depressed by those things. So there's a, a detailed explanation, maps of where these deaths occurred and everything in our latest paper that came out a couple months ago. Uh, it's 170 pages full of graphs and data and everything. And we explain in detail what happened there. And I think that, that it's the most comprehensive study of the health aspects of this COVID crisis, if you like. Okay. What, what, do, um, what do you say to perhaps, have you gotten critics or, or skeptics who maybe question your research or wonder if you might be wrong in your calculations? Uh, have you gotten people... Uh, um, I, I mean, I would love for people to want to debate me about the about the data and everything. I mean, it, it can't be wrong. It's robust all-cause mortality studied as a function of time and jurisdiction and by age group. So it can't be wrong. You either have a peak there or you don't. And you can integrate the magnitude of that peak and you can look at what the historic trend is and you can see where it occurs and where it doesn't occur. So you can't, you can't be wrong. It's not like I'm looking under the microscope and seeing the wrong thing. You know what I mean? Uh, it's not like I have to interpret, oh, is that a virus or is it a vesicle or is it a, an artifact in my microscope? No, no, I don't have to interpret anything. I've, I've got hard data and I'm looking at it in, in detail using uh, accepted statistical methods. And this is, this is what I, I can tell you what I see and what I don't see. And so I can't be wrong, I don't think, you know. All right. Well, let's then turn uh, towards the geopolitical, geoeconomic. Uh, you tweeted to me today a question. You want to know why COVID? Uh, COVID measures are the war measures against domestic backlash against the consequences of the USA's economic geopolitical war with China, uh, end quote. And so, you know, there's a lot to unpack here, a lot going on. Uh, I, I mean, my, my earlier point was that we've determined that Project COVID, what they sell us as as what COVID is, has nothing really to do with health or public health uh, in their minds, but has everything to do with a larger global, I'll say globalist, geopolitical, geoeconomic war going on. Uh, and in my mind, it seems to be a cover that disguises the battle for and or construction of of world government on one hand, the goal of all history and you know a planetary world empire and the big players, of course, are North America together with Europe, Eurasia together with China and so forth. And so if we can't explain these pandemic government policies and war measures in terms of health as they tell us, then what is really going on uh, in your mind? Okay, well, the, the tweet that I put out this morning that you read was the graphs, the figures that I showed in that tweet 
was to show that the biggest one of the biggest news items today is that um, the inflation has, for the first time, reached levels comparable to what it was in 1982. So we have stratospheric, you know, we're just breaking all the records regarding inflation right now in the United States, 7% per year. That's huge, right? Huge. And so you have to go back many decades before you see that kind of thing again. And so inflation like this is a direct consequence of a transformation of the global uh, uh, exchange manufacturing uh, you know, system. The, you know, they, they, China was an integral part of the U.S.-dominated capital system and is now uh, the U.S. is decoupling from China and is in an, in an economic war against China. And this is causing in incredible inflation because a lot of things that were made cheaply in China and where everything had been efficiently made in the global economy to uh, and, and came to kind of an equilibrium is now being completely disrupted. So there's going to be huge inflation and inflation means that uh, the savings of ordinary people uh, disappear. And so you, your, your long-term security, even your pensions, everything is put at risk if you allow inflation to be uh, in this way, and you're necessarily going to get inflation uh, when you disrupt the supply chains to this degree and decide that you're going to reorganize the global economic system. Okay, and so I see COVID at, at least in great part as being war measures that are being applied to the domestic populations. You know, w- by war measures I mean complete surveillance, complete control of your movements, complete uh, everything in that regard. And also, uh, you're not allowed to travel anymore. If in effect, that's that's what it is. And, and, and so they know where you are, what you're doing. They allow certain things that can cut off your, your, your spending. They can cut off where you're allowed to go to spend, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're putting in the e-currency at the same time, and this is the way to bring it in. Um, so it's complete control of the domestic population in a hard way. I mean, we're talking your money. And um, you do that. It's a war measures uh, in a war. And the war is the economic war with uh, the, the China, basically, the Eurasia and the development of Eurasia and the path that it was on. So I don't agree with you that we're, we're not close to worldwide globalization right now. We're still in a, in a period where there is uh, some competition against the major globalized block controlled by the USA. And that, that alternative block is, is places where you have real sovereignty like China and Russia and their, their economic exchanges and the places that they can have influence in and that they have economic ties with and so on. That block is on a growing trajectory and is uh, clearly surpassing, going to surpass, and has, or just at the crossing point of surpassing the US system, okay? So um, the US has decided to try to crush it or harm it as much as it can. And the way to do that is to decouple US investments and US uh, economic collaboration from China, 
First, they tried to de- negotiate a new de- deal. That's what Trump did, trying to coerce China into accepting very unfavorable conditions regarding all the economic exchanges that that were allowed, that were integrated. Um, and, and when that didn't work, they decided, all right, then we'll militarily circle them and threaten them and cut off all of our economic uh, and their ability to have the kinds of economic exchanges broadly that they had before as well. And so there's a real economic war between real opponents. It's geopolitics. It's not, we're not just fine-tuning global a globalized world. This is a real geopolitical war, I believe. And COVID is our war measures. The COVID measures are war measures in the context of this um, geopolitical economic war that will last at least a decade, at least a decade. So the kind of control that they're installing now and everything, nothing will ever be brought back. There's no way. There's no way. This is, they want complete control. They want complete impossibility of any democracy or resistance from within as they transform the world in this way and risk, even risk hot wars, you know? Um, so, and, and so that's what I think COVID is principally. It was, it was a, a CIA coordinated uh, campaign to uh, bring in place these measures because they uh, are consistently what you want. You want to, the, the only kind of system that can go to war in a serious way and create damage and suffering to even the domestic population is a totalitarian system. So you never have democracy during wartime. And you, you, you always have, you know, this, this absolute totalitarian system. And that's what they're installing. And, um, and that's what they're putting into place and making sure that uh, real democratic uh, governance never returns, not for the near future anyway. Um, so I, that's how I see COVID as just as this one feature in this, in this uh, uh, glo- um, geopolitical struggle. What I'm struggling to understand is that as you outlined this kind of struggle between the East and West, I, maybe this is like my kind of binary thinking where I would think, okay, the West is struggling against Russia and China. The West is applying these totalitarian war measures to its own population. And you would think that, you know, Russia and China wouldn't apply those measures to their own population, but it seems that across the the board- Oh, On the opposite. Oh, oh, why are all countries then? It seems like as if all the world because they're all they're, look look. Everyone, this is a war that is uh, massive, and everyone domestically has to apply these war measures because everyone has to be concerned about domestic terrorism and domestic resistance and internal strife that would uh, take away from the ability to respond in warlike conditions, okay? So China and Russia are imposing what they feel is necessary uh, because they don't want to be left behind. They don't want, they see the West developing these incredible uh, surveillance and control mechanisms and an e-currency. They can't have freedom on their side because they will make them too vulnerable way too vulnerable in comparison to this totalitarian system that is gearing up for a war and that is right in a war. So I see, I I believe that China and Russia impose these measures uh, for their own reasons 
And those reasons have a lot to do with the geopolitical tensions that are being created. Because you don't have the geopolitical tensions just in one of the parties, but in all of the parties that are involved in this struggle. So that, that's how I understand it. I mean, the, the, the West has discovered a way to uh, take away the nuisance of democracy and to install complete surveillance and control of, of all citizens and movements in the country. Why would uh, the opponents, Russia and China, not take advantage of this uh, under the cover that it's legitimate to do it because COVID, because pandemic, et cetera, why would they not do it? They'd be crazy not to do it, you see? So that's how I understand it. There's no way that they're doing it because they're being directed from above by the same people that are directing the United States. That's just, to me, that's just a fantasy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, it makes uh, sense. And um, I mean, wh what do you think that, you know, I cannot believe at, at this point um, that our politicians, I think in most countries, be they mayors, local officials, governors or presidents, that at least that, that they would know that this isn't about health anymore because these measures, they're selling it, the, the way they're selling these measures to us, like it, it doesn't make any logical sense. So I have to believe that um, they are in on it or they're forced to, to implement these measures, um, you know, that, that, that they know that they're carrying out tyranny. Well, um, you I, know, you know, I, I, I kind of disagree with your premise. Um, mm -hmm. you're, you're basically saying they must know they would know. And the, pro the problem I have with this is the following. They don't work that way. You know, health officials don't work on the basis of knowledge. They never question themselves in terms of what is true and what makes sense. Their functioning, their way of operation is based on careerism, is based on their career, their status within the profession, their status within with their employer and so on. Everything, that's the filter. That's the filter. So it's not about understanding and really evaluating what's better for the population or what's better for people. It's all about ensuring that your uh, professional and employee status and your status in society are maintained, are optimized, are increased. And it's about obedience and it's about fitting into that establishment. So it's not about science or understanding or judgment or you know morality or anything like that. It's these these are careerists. These are careerists. You've got to get you got to understand that they're not like free thinkers. They're not like you and I. You know, they're not that they don't operate that way. They're not trying to figure out what's going on here and and is this good for society and so on. They're just doing what's good for their careers. Period. And it does not occur to you know, except there are exceptions that prove the rule, but mostly it does not occur to them to think what does this really mean? Can I read this scientific paper and understand it? What are, what are the premises here? What Do I agree with this? What, what's it based on? What's the scientific basis for what this author is putting forward? They don't think that way. It never, it never crosses their, their mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I, I do see what, what you're saying. I mean, the, the people that mm -hmm. I know, I've got young former students who are now studying medicine um, you know, in university, and they just take in what they're told and they, they don't question anything else. And then they just go with the flow as, 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 as you're laying well, out. They'd be punished to question it because it would be a loss of their resources. It would be a loss of their energy to start questioning it. 
they are they have a full-time job just obeying and learning by heart what they're being told and learning what the procedures are and learning what the rules of the game are and learning how how to get ahead they, that's a full-time job for them so so they can't waste their time trying to figure out what's really going on here there's no there's no rewards for that kind of thinking none whatsoever only punishment so why would you go there right yeah i mean uh, mds that come out of medical school are like robot zombies they're applying protocols and uh repeating what the rules are and learning what the rules are and the rules are more and more complex all the time and the rules meaning the protocols are changing all the time as well and their duty is to keep up with them they need to know the rules and how they're changing and so that's part of how the whole system holds together and they just keep doing this so they can go down this path of something that the establishment wants and that's at the same time of great profit to pharma they can go very far in that direction without ever there being a flag raised or anything because they're trained to operate that way this is just what boggles my mind because i always always i've always been the person that just kind of questions every step that i take forward and i can't believe how other people <laughs> don't operate like this and so i know i i, I wanted but to you, get, you, uh, you you and i you and i are at a dis advantage in that regard the disadvantage is because we're that way we have a tendency to think that most people are that way and we and we try to analyze things through that lens but it's not the correct lens mm-hmm. most people are just um uh ensuring their position within the dominance hierarchy of society mm-hmm. period you know that that's all that matters and uh, we're we're just freaks we're just freaks there's like we're freaks of nature um it's accidents of our upbringing and our the societies that we were born in and so on we're just freaks of nature i think all right and i i wanted to get your thoughts <laughs> yeah so so, so yeah i agree and so we covered the the health aspect we covered the east west geopolitical aspect and you're talking about the war measures and so i want to get your thoughts on that so i'm here in jalisco uh mexico which is probably the second most important state uh this week they have just announced obligatory pcr testing or vaccine passports to enter a number of establishments uh here one other state in mexico called tlaxcala which is uh, maybe the tiniest state in mexico has made it mandatory uh the vaccine passport for everything including supermarkets and parks you know nature parks is according to a report and so i believe this is going to spread to every state and every country on the planet if nothing stops it and i i think that absolutely that they need every single citizen to be uh vaccinated or at least tested or whatever to have the vaccine passport which is going to link to the digital currency as you mentioned because this is the new global system the new financial political system um you know once this system is in place we don't have rights anymore as you mentioned no more democracy we will be in the dig- digital uh prison there was an interesting article that i read recently from strategic culture by uh i think former mi6 british diplomat alistair crook and he was citing a professor who says quote the consequences of emergency capitalism are emphatically biopolitical they concern the administration of a human surplus that is growing superfluous for a largely automated highly financialized and implosive reproductive model this is why virus vaccine and covid pass are the holy trinity of social engineering 
And he says that the virus passports are meant to train the multitudes in the use of electronic wallets, controlling access to public services and personal livelihood. The dispossessed and redundant masses, together with the non-compliant, like you and me, are the first in line to be disciplined by digitalized poverty management systems directly overseen by monopoly capital. The plan is to tokenize human behavior and place it on blockchain ledgers run by algorithms. And the spreading of global fear is the perfect ideological stick to hurt us toward this outcome, um, end quote. So, you know, what are your thoughts on this dystopian? Well, you know, that's, you know, that's fine. I kind of understand where he's going with that. But, um, you know, you could, you could impose a, a, uh, an identity system, a pass that's electronic that prevents you from spending money wherever. You could do all that simply by saying, we're at war and these are war measures and you're going to do it. Okay, you could do it that way. You, you wouldn't need to vaccinate people or force them to wear face masks. The big advantage of forcing people to be vaccinated and wear face masks is that you're forcing them individually to submit and to submit to a very high degree, to agree to have the state inject a substance into your body, to agree to have the state to uh, restrict your breathing. This is a high level of submission, and they, they want that because they don't want independent thinkers. They don't want people resisting in any way because they're about to create uh, a dystopia and they are uh, going into an economic war that could have all kinds of repercussions. And they've decided that uh, democracy and independent thinking people is a real nuisance. And therefore, they want to train you like they would train any animal to accept in a very submissive way. And so if you are accepting a, a substance being in, directly injected into your body that we know can cause your death, that we know can cause permanent damage uh, to your health and all kinds of horrible things and uh, is, is, is causing health problems in young high-performance athletes around the world, all these things, we know all that and you know all that. And you're, you're still going to argue that, you know, you're still going to accept it by accepting it in that way. Two things, you're buying into it personally. So you believe the lie. Once you buy into it to that degree, it's hard psychologically to admit that you were wrong and maybe you shouldn't have let them inject you, or maybe this whole thing is not true. Once you invest to that degree with your own body, uh, and you've been wearing a mask for months and months and months and telling others and glaring at them when they don't wear a mask, you've, you, you're really part of that. You're, you're ingrained into that at the deepest psychological level. You have bought into it. You invested personally in it. And that's what they want. That's what they want. That's why uh, vaccination is so important to them. They want complete submission, I think. That's how I understand it. So you get a very strong tie uh, with accepting uh, 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 the authority of the system, and uh, you 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 accept it completely. So you, you you it's a kind of way of it's it's like you know what it's like when a new prisoners arrive in a prison, and the guards make a point of being really harsh in terms of disciplining them at the beginning to make it clear to them that there is no chance you just obey whatever we say. There is, don't even think of resisting or being independently minded here. It's not going to work, right? And then they really do that. They break you down. Um, it's that kind of thing. They're breaking down the entire population and getting us to buy into it. 
and it's a horrible system. Look, it's it's complete dystopia. Uh, it, 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 it's really monstrous what they're doing. Um, but that's that's what they've decided to do. They're so they're so they so want to run the world and be on top of the world for the for the foreseeable future. They cannot put up with competing system, uh, a competing. They they don't want a multipolar world. It's been monopolar for very long. They've been really good at at developing this hierarchical control of everything. In my geopolitics paper that you mentioned that I wrote in 2019, I explained how uh, ge the geopolitical integration of the U.S.-centered globalization was dramatically increased after the Bretton Woods Agreement was was uh, retracted from unilaterally by the United States in 1971. And then the second big overall really inc big increase, acceleration of, of that globalization was in 1991-92 when the Soviet Union uh, uh, disintegrated. And then there were other periods as well. And <clears throat> they've been putting into place ways of enforcing that and trying to impose it on the whole world. And I think that the global warming narrative has been part of that. There was a real attempt there to be able to control the development of countries through their usage of carbon uh, or, the, you know, through, through carbon and so on and have a carbon economy. I think they toyed with the idea that uh, the, the new international currency that has to replace the dollar eventually because uh, the big, you know, there's a lot of trading going on that's excluding the U.S. dollar because they don't want the, the U.S. sanctions. So Russia and China and many, many pairwise countries exchange in their own currencies now. They, they, they circumvent the dollar. So they saw this as a real threat and they've been looking for a way around this. And I think they want e-currencies now and um, they want an e-currency that can take over the world. They want uh, a, a, an e-currency based uh, US centered economy that is so strong that it will go gobble up the e-currencies being set up in Russia and China eventually. You know, and 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 that is that is much more that is impossible to circumvent. Okay, you can circumvent the U.S. dollar, but you you won't be able to circumvent this. And so I think that's the kind of thinking that they that they that they're adopting. Um, it's it's geopolitical war, and and our domestic politics is is a slave to that. That's what's really going on. Speaking about that e-currency, that sounds a lot like Bitcoin, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, except that it will be controlled by this global, uh, these global forces, right? Right. Well, well my, so, you know, my biggest concern at the moment right now in general for the coming weeks, months, I don't know, are these dystopian COVID uh, war measures because it, I won't be able to do anything pretty soon. So that's kind of my number one preoccupation at this moment. How, how dark do you think... Do you think things will get because, you know, they're reintroducing lockdowns. I have seen videos of these curfews in Quebec. They're putting people in house arrest in different countries. And, you know, soon we might even lose access to our bank accounts. And, and uh, like I said, in this Mexican state, well, you, can't, you can't even go in a supermarket to buy food. So, you know, what, what do I, we do? I, you know? I think we're still in the phase that they're breaking us down. You know, like we're, we're the new prisoners arriving in this prison. And I think I think there's they have to be really strict and really extreme 
because there's whenever they perceive a chance that we're going to start saying no, this is nonsense. You've gone too far. This is crazy. Or I don't see I don't see people dying of this disease around me, so I don't believe it anymore. As soon as they get uh, a sense of that, they have to press harder. They have to squeeze even harder, you know. So they're they're playing this very dynamic game, if you like, of of really imposing, letting go when they have to, giving in a bit when local governments have to give in to a particularly strong uh, local domestic movement. You know, they, there's going to be this constant struggle like this. They're trying to find to what extent can we really acquire control. Once they feel that you're no longer a threat, um, they'll allow you to have some freedom, you know, and that they can take away any time. Um, those are the kinds of warlike conditions that we're entering into now. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely insane because there is no way that after billions of years of evolution, and coexisting coexistence between viruses and bacterial pathogens and and breathing animals, you know, for hundreds of millions of years, breathing animals on Earth and so on, uh, there is no way that all of a sudden there is a new virus that appeared that requires all of these measures, or else the the species will die and the hospitals will overflow to the point that there'll be even bigger catastrophes, worse than major earthquakes and you name it. That that's just like complete nonsense that all of a sudden a new viral uh, entity has has landed on the planet that now we need to have a booster every four months or we'll all get sick and die in hospital uh you know that this is just complete insanity complete nonsense complete nonsense so that's where we're at is that they can actually the the level of ignorance and and the loss of independent thinking and the loss of individual pride and individual control over your local community and your local government is so great that they can tell this lie and get everyone to go along with it. It's just unbelievable. That that last point you made is kind of what I've been tending to to use in arguing with normies or or people who are just buying the official propaganda is that if you just stop and think all of these measures just don't make uh, any sense. So something else is, is going on. And uh, as I related, you know, my biggest concern are these COVID war dystopian measures. Uh, you know, what, for you, what in terms of research or just your personal, you know, worry of, of everything that we've talked about or we haven't mentioned, you know, what are you most worried or, or focusing on in, in terms of, you know, the, the war measures, geopolitics, geoeconomics, what's going on in Canada? You know, what are you thinking about most these days? Well, you know, I'm I, you know, I'm a social theorist, so I try to understand these big phenomena. I'm a scientist. I'm a multidisciplinary scientist. So I try to understand, well, where, are, are, are more people dying? Where are they dying? Why are they dying? Um, what's going on here? Uh, what are the forces at play? I, I, I just try to understand this. It's in my nature to try to understand the world that I've, that I've been popped down into, right? That's what I do. But at the same time, I have to think, how can I best as an individual resist against this? You know, what, where can I play a role? Who can I help that is resisting? Uh, and so on. Like that, that's really important too. So I, I find that it's like um, a lot of people will say, well, we need a mass movement of resistance. And I, I, I don't like that when people say that because they don't understand what a mass movement of resistance is. They don't understand that 
a mass movement of resistance is completely useless and ineffective unless it is a coalition of individuals who are truly resisting individually. In other words, you see what I'm saying? So if they're waiting for this mass movement. They're waiting for big crowds in the streets. They don't care about big crowds in the streets. That has no impact. What they want, the, the, the only time a big crowd in the street is of concern to the establishment is when that big crowd in the street is marching towards the prime minister's residence in order to trash the place. That's when that crowd is of concern. When they're, when they're marching to close down an industry or the, to close down the mainstream media buildings or to, or to uh, you know, visit some influential people because they don't like what they're doing and, and give them a talking to, that's when those big crowds are of concern. The fact that there are big, big crowds in the streets expressing their opinion or even their anger is not really of concern. In the past, historically, crowds often called mobs, were influential because of the potential of actually doing things, not because they were expressing their opinions, okay? And so we, that, they have caused us to forget that, to not know history, to not know how social change occurs. We, in, in the United States, people don't know the struggles that occurred in order to give workers rights, in order to give true democratic protections against an employer that forces you to do extremely dangerous work, even if, you know, you're going to, on average, you're going to die by the time you're 30 or 40, and, 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 and how to prevent employers from hiring children because it's more convenient to hire them, and they're more easily trained, and, and so on, and they cost you less. How do you, all the, all the basic fundamental health and worker rights were won in the United States in a period where industry was murderous. We're talking coal mines, we're talking uh, vicious industry with dangerous machines, we're talking all these things. Those battles were won by people who fought in the trenches, right? And who organized in the workplace. And, um, uh, th these were serious. Um, Mary Mother Jones was one of the main activists that, that is still written about and talked about who organized uh, coal miners and people like that. Uh, these were the real battles that showed the state that you had to have a minimum amount of decency for people and, their, their and respect their families and their basic needs and, and, and sanitary conditions in the home. Because, you know, in the industrial period in, in the UK and in the de developing Western world, workers were, were, were treated like uh, truly like slaves. The, the, they were housed in unbearable conditions. Um, the, the, you know, the, the ex life expectancy for the, the lower class workers of the economic development that, that came with industrial development was typically, I don't know, 30 or something years old, right? Like people were dying like flies. There was disease everywhere. There was, there was no sanitation. Uh, there were no, there was, all of this was the reality of a lot of people because of modernization. And people had to slowly fight against those horrible conditions and make uh, so-called capitalism more tolerable and more equitable, but th that was a struggle. That didn't happen on its own. It was a real fight, okay? So we we've forgotten all of that history. We've forgotten what you have to do. When the government gets it in its head that it's gonna screw you over a certain way and not care about your basic 
decency and your basic rights and your basic freedoms, uh, the things you have to do to fight back are pretty significant. It, it's a real battle. It's not enough to just go out in the street and, and protest. If it is enough, good, and then you can do it. And then if it works, great. But if it's not working, you got to figure out something else. And the, the thing that I say is the very first thing you got to do is to not comply. Do not get injected. Do not wear a mask. Do not uh, uh, not go where entry is forbidden. Do not do any of these things. Don't comply. Don't comply. Follow your gut and do not comply. And I practice that in my own in my own uh, you know personal life. I I will go shopping and not wear a mask. And uh, I it it works very well because. A lot of people know that this is crazy and is not right, and they won't bother you. They won't bother you. So you can you can at least show that there is some resistance still there. You can you can, but I when I when I resist personally, because it's an it's a deep personal conviction for me. I'm prepared to really hold my ground. You know, if the manager comes out with five employees and they're trying to convince me, or they bring in the security guards, so be it so be it. You know, I will fight them and then I will fight them the best I can in court and elsewhere. I will try to expose it, make it public, and I will help others who are fighting in the same way. But that non-compliance is the kind of personal conviction that you need to make, I think. Not, it, because without non individual non-compliance as a first step, as part of this coalescing crowd of people that will eventually create more change, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, expression will come out of uh, new political parties as well. You're all you have to constantly look for political expression that you can get behind. You have to evaluate them carefully, and you have to change your mind if it turns out that they're just not not authentic, or they're not real, or they're not uh, doing enough, or they're not taking the right route. But there is a potential. There's still there's still structures in place that allows political parties. And so use every structure you can, do everything you can, and and resist it. I would say, I, I've, I, what you just said. I think that's the first and best answer is just non-compliance. That's the primary answer. If enough people just didn't comply, they couldn't move forward. And unfortunately, it's not, it's not an answer, and you cannot qualify it with if enough people did this. It's not if if you think that way. You're moving away from, I will not do it. Okay. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care if, if there's a million people doing it or not. I don't care if there's only five of us in the country. I will not do it. Once you take that stance, uh, that is the kind of real stance personally that is the only thing that can constitute, uh, that can eventually constitute a real movement. Yeah, and, and and that's I mean that's the stance that I have. I I I'm I'm I've been doing what you've been doing since day one, and I, I don't go anywhere with I, I'm just not complying with going anywhere where a mask is required. And if I have to, in the rare occasion, we recently went um, to the beach and we went to a hotel, and it's when you register at the hotel, you have to put on the mask. But once you're done registering, you know, go to your room and then you walk around the hotel and go to the pool. No one's wearing a mask, which is just insane. And so. When we're registering, the lady tells me, I'm not, I'm the only one not wearing a mask in our group. And she tells me, put on the mask. And I sternly look at her and I put on my mask and I always have in my wallet 
I take out one of these little stickers. It's in Spanish. <laughs> it's in Spanish and says, you know, the people in Germany, uh, you know, in the forties also didn't uh, know that their governments were, you know, brainwashing them. Or another one that says, <laughs> you know, or the, another one that says, um, I, I can't still believe that people think all of these measures have to do with stopping a virus. And I put it on my mask like this, and I stare at her, and you know, that's my way of resisting, like telling her that you, politely telling her you're nuts and I'm not happy with your fascism, but I, I'm doing this now, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so this is just like when, when you have every, to do- every, every circumstance, you have to judge how you're going to respond, whether or not you're really going to take it all the way. You have to choose your, you have to choose your, your circumstance in, in the circumstance that you're at. You know, I've had, I've had occasions where my, my wife, uh, my wonderful wife has said, Denny, please, we're going in there together. Please put your mask on. You know, see, uh, that was my point. That's something that happened because because you, what you mentioned earlier, this uh, having the courage to really, like you said, that willing for the manager and the five employees to come surround you. I have that. You know, that that's what I I did. And my wife, when she saw me doing that, she was like, oh. Like because they're embarrassed, they don't they don't yet have the courage to deal with that publicly. And she was like, "Oh no, what are you doing?" And I was like, "No, <laughs> you know." <laughs> yeah. So every 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 situation is different, and there will be new situations that will arise because it is a it, it's a it's a moving battle. It's there's many moving parts. There's all kinds of things happening, and as long as we stay alive with the desire to resist this thing in the most effective way that we can, we will see opportunities and we will have occasion to do, to do things, you know, and honestly, um, they're not threatening me right now. They're not taking me away to the insane asylum. Like they have done with some MDs who have been uh, politically involved here in the Canada, put them into asylums and, and inject them against their will with various uh, drugs and so on. That has actually happened to an MD in Canada. So they're not doing that to me right now. No one's knocked on my door. They haven't threatened to cut my pension or take my bank account or anything like that, right? So um, I have no reason to crank it up. You know, I'm, I feel that I, I'm playing an important role by helping people understand what's going on and and communicating what i communicate and also i'm helping many others who are trying to sort things out and they really appreciate my help as a mentor or as a colleague or as a collaborator so i i feel i have a role and i feel i have my place and i still feel that it makes sense to you know i'm i'm not but as pressure increases i mean i think of the people who died in the united states a million people i think of the horrendous conditions under which they died I think of the the communities and the and the homes and the establishments and the, the 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 families that were destroyed by this and everything, and you know sooner or later that kind of pressure there's going to be backlash, um, and there will be people will discover ways of resisting. It's unpredictable how it's going to go, and they have to have good surveillance to spot reactions that might have a potential to do things. So it's not an accident, for example, when here in Ontario, one uh, restaurant owner is very brave, very outspoken. It was a barbecue place uh, in in, in uh, Ontario and said, my place is going to stay open. You're all welcome. 
here are the picnic tables, come and eat the barbecue. And, and, every, and everyone came and everyone was happy to do it. And it was a movement. Well, it's not an accident that they sent in basically an army to close the place down, right? They want to be intimidating and completely overpowering, handcuff you, break the doors down, you know, put close up the area, build a big fence around it if they need to, and take you into the legal system, into the court system, where basically you have this incredibly biased and obtuse court that you have to deal with for years and years and years until you run out of money and get discouraged and be told that, you know, this is the most justice in quotations that you're going to get. Here it is. Um, so, you know, they have to do that because they, they have to completely kill any spark of real resistance. So you know that, but you never know one of these sparks is going to work. Someone's going to figure something else out. And then some of these sparks are going to catch on and there'll be too many sparks for them to handle and so on. You never know when that kind of thing is going to happen. It's a nonlinear complex process. So who knows? That having said that, we also know that totalitarian can last a long time. You know, uh, totalitarianism, a totalitarian system that is extreme and does not allow for individual freedom and uh, democratic expression, it can survive for 100 years or more. And, uh, you know, slavery in the U.S., 400 years. You know, they, these, these, these systems can be stable for a long time. And typically, the thing that makes them unstable is competition from another system, another system that finds a more effective way, because let's face it, distributed decision-making, distributed intelligence, distributed economic motives is a much more efficient system than totalitarianism. That's why the West has been so successful, you know, to have property rights, to have uh, patent rules, to have laws that allow for private enterprise and, and corporations and everything. That kind of system with, with a, a more distributed hierarchy of, of, of wealth sharing and decision making is potentially way more creative and way more and way stronger than a totalitarian system that has a lot of not very healthy people at the bottom of the pyramid, you see. And so when it, when it, when push comes to shoves between civilizations, um, the, those ones might have more of an advantage. Yeah, you, you answered my last question, basically. I was going <laughs> to ask that, like, apart from continuing uh, resisting, do we just become accustomed to, uh, over the years, coming months and years to these dystopian COVID measures? And I, I have the same view that, as you said, there can be some white swan or some event come in unpredictable that can change the course uh, of hi the history that we're in, or that we could go deep into tyranny that, that, that historically, you know, we have to come to terms with, with this harsh reality that it could last a long time, what, what we're going into. And so, uh, do you have any final then, uh, thought to leave us with? Well, I mean, we, we covered a lot of ground. Um, I would really appreciate if your listeners would go to my website, donironco.ca and look at the kinds of things that I write about as a social theorist. Uh, there's a whole section on COVID there. There's a whole section on geopolitics. There's a whole section on medicine, health, uh, and, 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 and political theory as well. So I've been writing for many, many years, and I think I've, I've discovered some pretty important ideas, you know? So if people are into those, those of your listeners that really want to, that are intellectually digging into an understanding, I would welcome them to, I, I would invite them to go and look at my website. That, that's, uh, 
kind of the final thing I could say at this stage. What else can I say that would be more important? Um, I think we're going to have victories along the way. We're going to be able to push back. There's going to be all kinds of examples of really successful pushback. Um, it's amazing what's happening in some of the states in the United States. You know, those are real battles. Um, we'll see if they can control elections like they want to control the currency. Uh, you know, we'll see what what's going to happen. There's going to be all kinds of things that are going to happen. It's a very interesting time to be struggling and to be pushing back. And I would encourage people to take pleasure in that and to take pleasure in discovering about the real nature of, of their governments. I mean, the only way you find out their true nature is when they go too far like this. And when you push back and see the reaction, that's when you discover what they're really like. So consider it um, a, a kind of a, 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 a road trip that you go on where you're trying to <laughs> discover these things and push back and do what you can, right? <laughs> I don't know. That's, I don't know what well, to we, say. We took a really long, uh, then a road trip where you take a really, really wrong uh, turn. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> but in any case, it's fun. You know, I've had a bunch of those road trips around the world. And so <laughs> I'll, I'll include all of the links to, to your stuff in the, the description, uh, in the podcast, wherever it goes out to every platform. And, um, yeah, it's always great to talk with you and hope, hopefully we can do it again in the future. And, you know, hopefully you stay out of the asylum out there in Canada. They don't come for you. And so thank yeah. you. Th thanks again for coming back uh, on geopolitics and empire. Okay. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll do what I can to stay out of there. I hope you enjoyed this geopolitics and empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else. Subscribe to all our platforms and Leave a donation, if possible, via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.